Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Spent years on death row, but tonight Nazi sympathizer Frank Spizak is dead. Spizak was executed today by the state of Ohio. His death was by lethal injection for the murders of two men and a teenager at Cleveland State University in 1982. News Channel 5's John Kosick joins us now. John, did Spizak apologize for his crimes? Well, Leon Spizak's final statement was in German from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, which speaks of a new heaven and earth. He stopped, though, before reading verse 8. That verse references the fiery fate that awaits murderers. In the seconds after being sentenced to death in 1983, Frank Spizak turned to his attorney with one request. He has indicated that he wants to uh, be electrocuted as soon as possible. He wanted to be electrocuted as soon as possible. Soon as possible turned into 27 years, the longest of any inmate ever executed in Ohio. This morning at 10:34, the 59-year-old Spizak was dead by lethal injection. As medical workers prepared Spizak's IV, the brothers of victim Brian Warford looked on. Mr. Duke then expressed uh, his opinion that they ought to hook him up to some kind of an electrical generator rather than go through the medical procedure they were doing. Other witnesses included the daughter of Timothy Sheehan and John Hardaway, who survived being shot by Spizak. No family members of Spizak were present. I really wanted to be there for him, but I didn't know how. Carolyn Jasko grew up with Spizak and his two sisters. Yes, I do feel bad for him. Yes, I do. He was a really mixed up kid. He was really mixed up. Spizak's surviving victim, John Hardaway, didn't speak today, but he did speak in 1983, on the day he learned Spizak would die. On that day, he said this day couldn't come soon enough. I don't have the feeling that, that he should live any, any longer. It looked like they killed too much time with him already. And Carolyn, who grew up with Spizak, said they were never allowed to play at the Spizak home. His parents were very strict. And she says they would sometimes make their kids kneel on broomsticks as a form of punishment. Live at the newsroom, John Kosick, News Channel 5. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to travel back in time and to 1982 and to the campus where I actually graduated from in 2006. So I am talking about the murders that took place on the Cleveland State University campus in August of 1982. And it was a terrorizing situation because what we had was a guy who was a neo-Nazi who had decided to take out his hate on the people that worked or attended or were around the area of the Cleveland State University campus. Now, the campus itself, I can tell you, in 1982, it was a lot smaller than it is today. It runs from about East 18th Street in downtown Cleveland to about East 30th. Now, with the campus being so spread out, it's much more of a commuter school. And so, therefore, there are a lot of people that come from, you know, out of town and I did the same as well, so you don't have a lot of residents on campus. Now, this individual that we are going to talk about is uh, pretty much one of the worst type of people that you can imagine. He just wanted to create havoc and was really just a very hateful person and had a lot of 
underlying issues, but again, you know, we're not going to let that be something that stands in the way of prosecuting somebody for basically, you know, race-related crimes. And this guy was Frank Spizak, and he was 32 at the time, and he basically was suffering from some personality disorders. And again, none of that can explain his hatred. And in this episode, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be using resources from the Columbus Dispatch, the Cleveland Magazine, as well as the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Now, this is all just to piece together this tragic spree. Now, some articles I will quote directly from, and you can follow the sources in the show notes. Now, over the course of several months in 1982, Spizak, who was driven by his Nazi beliefs, killed three people at Cleveland State University. Reverend Horace Rickerson, CSU student Brian Warford, and Timothy Sheehan, an assistant superintendent for buildings and grounds at the university. Spisak also shot John Hardaway, a factory worker, and Coletta Dart, a CSU employee. Spisak would go on hunting parties, quote-unquote, and targeted Rickerson, Warford, and Hardaway because, well, it was their race, of course. And John Hardaway was actually heading home from work when he came across Mr. Spizak. And this was, again, a neo-Nazi who ambushed him at the transit station. He was shot seven times in the arm and torso. And basically, he was just left for dead. But somehow, miraculously, he survived the shooting. And it was an amazing survival story in the sense that the RTA driver or the transit driver of the uh, train actually saw him bleeding on the stand waiting to board the uh, transit. And she was able to get help there quick enough to save his life, which is really a miracle. It was about 11 p.m. when Hardaway was shot, and it was like he was just looking to cash his paycheck. It wasn't like he was doing anything that would have put him in harm's way. He was literally just cashing his paycheck like a normal working man. And then you have somebody like Spizak who sees this as a victim and game, you know, and we all know the the book Most Dangerous Game and that's all about hunting humans. Just go back to the Zodiac case and you will know all about that book and that story, I'm sure you read it when you were in grade school or in high school, most likely. Grade school, that would have been a little, a little tough to handle. But this guy, like I said, he had committed all these race-related crimes, and Spizak's neighbors actually knew him as Frankie and Spizak. And when I mentioned he had personality issues before, this is what I was referring to. He actually... This is quote unquote. So I'm, this is, I know it does not work for today's day and age, and this is non PC, but he was known as a frizzy haired transvestite who was looking forward to having a sex change operation. Now, <laughs> that is interesting, but again, nothing that would lead you to think that he would be, become a serial killer. Now, he did eventually decide he did not want to be a woman, and instead, he wanted to be like Hitler. And this is according to, uh, I believe, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And he stopped wearing frocks. 
and makeup because that was what he did on a normal basis. And he started wearing suits and he slicked his hair back and, you know, was one of those kind of a greaser guys, drove around a fancy sports car or whatever. And that was his new persona. And I'm not sure what he was trying to do, but he was definitely noticed by his neighbors as changing his personality. And I guess it was in February of 82 where Spizak launched his first, quote, seek and destroy mission. And this is where he's attempting to clean up the city. Now, this is like very much like a bad B movie. Uh, you could just imagine somebody like this, uh, if you, especially if you see his trial footage, he is one meek little man, and he went to Cleveland State University, and that's where he shot Reverend Horace Rickerson in the men's room. Now, the Reverend died, and four months later, he would shoot another black man. That, again, was John Hardaway. Now, he did survive, as I mentioned. But during August, Spizak struck three times. This was, you know, the first one was Timothy Sheehan. As I mentioned before, he was the groundskeeper there. It was interesting because he was white, and there was some indication that he may have thought that he was Jewish, and that's why he was targeted. A very tragic case was also young Brian Warford. He was only 17, and he was black, and he was at the bus stop near campus and it was um really tragic just because he was just starting his life and trying to get his life in order so tough to see that happen the next attack that he did try he did actually screw this one up so that was um colette and so that's a good thing that he wasn't able to uh hit all of his targets because, you know, Coletta had left the restroom and she basically came right into contact with Frank Spizak. Now he did order her to go back into the bathroom, but she actually pushed him and uh, I guess she was quite physical and was able to get away and he did shoot at her, but he did not hit her. So uh, that is one of those lucky situations of course you have to live with survivor's guilt at that point as we've all come to know about with the idaho four and you know many other cases but the most recent being that case where those witnesses the two girls that didn't end up victims are gonna have to live with that the rest of their lives and that's just tragic so again it just takes one person to create a living hell and that's what he did in the world of the Cleveland State campus and downtown Cleveland because it wasn't just the fact that he was killing people or just randomly killing people. It was the hate that went around with it. And it was a time where Cleveland was beginning to change and it kind of set the city back a little bit because it was sort of like a... Yeah, we're progressing, but we've got this crazy lunatic running around killing people, and it was a little tough to swallow. But, again, we were doing new things at that time in 1982. We had really recently just come out of uh, default. Uh, that's another great Cleveland story, but that will be for another day. With Spisak, what we had here was a guy who, kind of like Ted Bundy, 
reached a point where he couldn't keep in his inner hatred anymore and just decided that he was going to release it on random victims. And that was his thing. And that's what he did. And unfortunately, it left three families without their loved ones. And you know how that works. It just it's a snowball effect. I mean, it just is terrible. It's terrible. The thing is, Spisak was eventually arrested. And that was after there was a report in September of a guy firing his gun from a window. And this was on East 53rd Street. If you know downtown Cleveland at all, not the greatest area ever. So I don't know if he was just pissed off or what, but he was definitely weird. And so they they arrived at Spizak's apartment. And he did tell them that he had shot a gun and I guess a shotgun and a 22 caliber automatic pistol were like seen in the room. So that that's how you kind of, you know, you don't get to search somebody's house without a warrant, but if you see something, well, that's what happened in this case. And Spisak apparently made a suspicious move toward the couch, but luckily was stopped by one of the officers who discovered a loaded 38 caliber handgun and a two shot Derringer under the couch cushions. He was arrested for possession of unregistered handguns and discharging firearms within the city limits. But here's the thing. He was released on bond. It was not known that he was the Cleveland state murderer. The weapons though were confiscated and early the next day, somebody actually an anonymous caller told police that the confiscated weapons were most likely the ones used in the Cleveland State University shootings. As the police do, they ran tests and the ballistics came back as a match. They did finally get the warrant and they went back to his apartment. They did take more items. They have found newspaper clippings of the homicides as well as some Nazi white power paraphernalia. Now, this again was, he was arrested once again, but he was hiding in the basement of a friend's house when he was found, which is exactly what you would expect from a raging lunatic racist because he is a POS and he doesn't have any real sense of what he's doing. And he's basically created this world where he thinks he's God, yet he's running and hiding in the basement. They found uh, the beeper that belonged to Timothy Sheehan, and Spisak later admitted to shooting Horace Rickerson for allegedly making a homosexual advance toward him. Uh, yeah, and to killing Tim Sheehan as a possible witness to the Horace Rickerson shooting, I guess the prosecution suggested it was the other way around with Spisak making the overture and being rejected. Now, that's interesting because, again, like I mentioned before, he did want to be referred to as Frankie Ann at one point and did cross-dress. So this is an interesting line for this guy. And so, again, he admitted to killing Brian Warford while on one of those quote-unquote hunting parties. And he was looking for just a black person to kill. And, again, with the Coletta Dart and John Hardaway shooting, he just basically wished he was a better shot. And uh, Spizak, now again, like I mentioned, he has a lot of issues. We're not going to dive too much into the personality of this clown, but we are going to say that 
in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, they talk about how he was raised by emotionally distant parents and he was beset by gender issues from childhood. Now, he blamed an extremely strict mother who humiliated and hit him when he displayed sexual behavior, says one court document. She taught him to hate people of color and others whom she deemed to be undesirable or repulsive. Oh, mommy's dearest, what a lovely lady that he, this person sounds like. Ah, terrible. Well, even as Spizak married, he took to female hormones and started anticipating that sex change operation we mentioned earlier. Now, that, of course, that would never happen. He did, uh, you know, he really got into the Nazi party. This is from Cleveland.com because this is, quote, this is directly from the article. The story of Spizak and those he killed and tried to kill is a morality play with the moral still to be written. At first, the victims seemed like random choices, separated by age and race and gender and class. They would not have found themselves side by side on the same city bus. But what they had in common was this. They were all strivers after something better. People who had changed courses in life, seeking another chance. And Cleveland is a city built on second chances. The city we live in was born that summer, four years after default, and 13 years of burning river jokes. We declared ourselves back on track. As the Cleveland press closed and Halley's department store faded, Time magazine pronounced us one of the country's most desirable cities. The CBS Evening News reported we were on the road to recovery. We did not feel like a city under siege, as crime scene investigators were pulling slugs from a campus wall, Duran Duran was opening for Blondie a few blocks away at the Agora. As another victim lay bleeding, moving vans emptied the Williamson and Cuyahoga buildings on Public Square for demolition before the building of the new Standard Oil Tower. Everywhere, the 19th century was making way for the 21st. Here is the Reverend Horace T. Rickerson, shot dead seven times on February 1st, 1982. Quote, four different spent billet casings were discovered at the scene, a court document read. And in the pastor of the Open Door Missionary Baptist Church, Rickerson had looked at its cramped home on East 83rd Street and dreamed because dreams not only turned into classrooms and towers, but into spires and pulpits, too. Now, in December 1975, a groundbreaking ceremony was held, and in March 1977, Rickerson dedicated the brand-new church on Woodland Avenue, just up the street from the borrowed room above a laundromat, where the congregation had started 50 years before. A weekly radio show called Quote, Heart to Heart on WJMO carried Rickerson's sermons. His last broadcast aired the night before he died, and it was titled, quote, How to Know You Are Saved. Rickerson left to research a sermon at Cleveland State's University Library and never returned. He went home, and that's the way church people say it. He went home. That August, Rickerson's congregation gathered without him for a ceremony, to burn the paid-off mortgage. Then there's John Hardaway, who was a working man. He had spent his young life looking at the world from inside a bottle. He battled alcohol's demons and wrestled them to a draw, remaining sober for 17 years. Quote, it was really tribute to John that he stayed with it. And that's 
what Nugent says now. Now, Nugent would end up being the prosecutor in this case. And, quote, every Friday night, he'd go to the Black Horse Tavern and have two little cans of orange juice, cash his check, and walk over and take the rap at home. Hardaway was shot seven times on the evening of June 4th, 1982, while waiting for the rapid at West 117th Street. His one quirk was for jewelry, and this is according to the article, and it saved his life. A medallion that he wore on his chest actually deflected one of the bullets, and that was the one that was aimed at his heart. Quote, three pellets and seven shell casings were recovered. The court document read, Just imagine the rapid driver, says Nugent. She pulls up to the stop at 1130 at night, and she sees Hardaway there, bleeding. And then she calls police. Then you have Coletta Dart, the Cleveland State University employee, who at 5 p.m. on August 9th left her office just to use the restroom. As I mentioned, she left the stall, met Spizak. Luckily, she had a black belt in karate and shoved him out of the way, ran down the hallway, and was able to dodge his bullet. You know, again, Timothy Sheehan, he was killed as well. And what is interesting is that would put a pin in that because Sheehan is a name that would end up being very relevant in the city of Cleveland for years to come. It's very interesting, as we see here, that the case against Frank Spizak is one that kind of falls into the disgruntled, unhappy, sort of an incel, what we would consider an incel these days. And things about like the victims, like you read about when you do these researches and look into cases like this, you find out Tim Sheehan, he loved his garden and that was according to his son. And it's funny weeks. He said, quote, it's funny a week, few weeks prior to my dad's death, my sister had graduated high school for a graduation present. My sister wanted to go to Ireland and she and my dad went, he said, Brendan, you stay home and make sure the lawn is cut stuff like that. Quote, he came back and it was. Okay, here's the thing. You didn't cut the lawn right. Here's how the work, the hedger. It's kind of ironic, like he was preparing me. So, again, that was directly from, I believe, the Cleveland Magazine article. And then you have from the Cleveland Plain Dealer in 1982. And it was... Quote, after graduation from high school, I had planned to study history in college, Spisak wrote from his cell, but went to work in a factory instead because I wanted, to, wanted money to buy myself a car and do other things. He entered Cleveland State in 1969, but was a dropout after 40 credit hours. By 72, he was working at a factory on Cleveland's east side. Spisak courted a worker, and that was one Laverne Lampert. He did so with flowers and Elvis records. Oh, good old guy. And then they married, and then within three years, they got divorced. But they did have a daughter in the meantime. And he did have a car accident that he believes, or at least his ex believes, caused him to have those personality disorders. So he started listening to albums of Hitler speeches he brought home uh, another cross-dressing man who he slept with. That led to his wife walking out. They briefly reconciled, apparently, for a couple years. Then he said he wanted to become a woman. Nothing wrong with that, but 
definitely not the relationship that she was probably looking for. He again took a job as a machinist at the Edward Daniel Company on St. Clair. Now that was with the local Teamsters, 507. And he would earn $220 every payday. And that's what he did. He did like to cross-dress, as I mentioned. That's what his activity was on the weekends. So if he had a hobby, his hobby was dressing up like a lady, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with the Nazism. And that's a big issue. And he basically got obsessed with Hitler. Mein Kampf and all that good stuff that really is the driving force behind a lot of the hate crimes that we still see today. And again, these hunting parties, as Spisak called his forays to rob and kill, Spisak stalked his victims in the city's lonely corners. He hunted where the, basically he felt most comfortable. Now, he went back to Cleveland State to wander the campus and study Nazi history in the university library. That is exactly where he found Brian Warford, and he ended up killing him. So it was unfortunate. And wrong place, wrong time. And it just is one of those examples of this individual being very, very much uh, focused on committing a crime that would last a while and would leave lasting ramifications as far as emotional distress and terror because again as i mentioned this is a hate-based crime and hate-based crime is scary because you can't control it and you do have a lot of lone wolves the thing about brian spisak is that he just is a piece of shit luckily it wasn't long after the warford killing that he was arrested and I mentioned it was on September 4th, 1982 where two Cleveland patrolmen climbed the stairs to a second story walk up at 1367 East 53rd street on Labor Day weekend. And it had just begun and they were called there again because there were shots fired from a window. What they found was everything that we mentioned before the shotgun, 22 caliber pistol, and that was just laying around. So they arrested him. Then again, you know, he was booked for possession. But it was two days later that the street was swarmed with officers and they actually took him into custody for the CSU murders. Basically, like I mentioned before, it was the ballistics that were able to connect the guns to the killings. It also didn't help that he had the clippings of the actual uh, event in his house and in his possession. So not necessarily the smartest guy in the room and definitely not the uh, brightest bulb in the chandelier. Reporters got the news. They went to Mid Park High where that he went to high school and they went through yearbooks. They do what they do. This is what local news does. They go and they track down the friends or the ex-friends of this so-called serial killer Apparently, this guy was um, not that cool, and that's so typical. One of his friends said he didn't know why Spisak would murder, but I quote, I suspect Frank has a logical explanation. Well, that doesn't seem like a, that's stupid. I'm going to say it right now. That's a dumbass quote. Now, Spisak told his court-appointed psychiatrist he tried to kill Coletta Dart because he became angry when he heard people making fun of the white people's party. Now, of course, that was according to court documents. He decided to teach her a lesson, intended to slap the shit out of her and rob her. When she came out of the ladies' room at Cleveland State, 
he decided it was time to act. Now he'd said he felt good about shooting Warford. His biggest worry was about getting back across to the other side of the campus to his car, according to one psychiatrist. Quote, I figured in the early morning hours, it was so quiet. Somebody was bound to hear all the shots. He would go on to admit that he was worried about getting caught after his first murder. Then he shot Hardaway on the other side of town. And that was on purpose because he just wanted to not make a pattern. But he did go back to Cleveland State when took the opportunity to kill more people there. He still didn't want to get caught, and he did try to protect himself from that. I mean, he would pick up the casings from the scene, and he would also say that that were worth money and you know, didn't want to be sloppy leaving things behind. This is from Cleveland Magazine. Quote, he started collecting Nazi memorabilia. Swords, framed pictures of Hitler. Neighbors would hear him blasting the Fuhrer's speeches in German on his stereo. As Spisak marched back and forth across his living room dressed in military garb, he developed an obsession with guns and ammunition, started stockpiling. Strangely, he also began dating a black female prostitute. Even as a Nazi, Spisak failed. Then God saved him. He would later recall for a jury. On the morning of February 1st, 1982, he was at the Cleveland State Library on the first floor of Rhodes Tower, a building that I've been in many times, reading a book on 1930s of Nazi propaganda. I can tell you, I did not read that book. When he got up to go to the bathroom, Spisak saw two feet underneath the door of one of the stalls. He went to the next toilet and put his eye up to the hole bored into the wall. It was a black man, Reverend Horace Rickerson. What happened next, again, we all know is unfortunate. He killed him, shot him seven times, and that is ridiculous because he was doing nothing but doing his research, and it is uh, ridiculous. It, he said afterwards he felt pretty good about the killing. He would say later that he's so good that he sat down and enjoyed a cup of coffee. But curiosity got the better of him, and he returned downstairs to watch a crowd gathering around the bathroom. There, he locked eyes with the campus maintenance man. Something in his eyes spooked Spizak, some hint of recognition, as if the man knew he was looking at the killer. Tim Sheehan had no idea his life had just been set on a timer. Now that was, again, directly from Cleveland Magazine. And it is, thing, it is interesting to think that Sheehan, you know, we mentioned earlier that he could have been just thought of as Jewish, and that's why he was targeted or the fact that he was maybe a witness. So we don't really know that truth. So that is something that we will find out later. Maybe we'll never find that out, actually, because it's been so long. The summer of 82, as they say in the magazine, it was a bloody one. And the city was averaging four bodies a week, which is pretty high for Cleveland. Gang killings were, of course, rising. Again, this was 82. Everybody was basically fleeing the city and heading to the suburbs. And so you never really wanted to be downtown after dark in the 1980s. That's pretty much where you had Spisak. Like, he could walk around and roam and commit these crimes. He said in one of his testimonies, you know, when he was on the stand, that he felt like he had finally accomplished something. And that's just ridiculous. Now, he did befriend another guy, which is typical... In these situations, he was another loner. He was a Nazi wannabe. And that would be one Ron Reddish. Now, they did cruise the streets 
in Reddish's Buick LeSabre looking for men to kill, specifically black men, what it is is a hunting party, according to Spisak. And that is just disgusting. Nobody, just because of the color of their skin, deserves to be targeted. No human being deserves to be taken out of their lives from their families. And nobody deserves to be taken out by this individual. Again, that is where we stand. I mean, he gets arrested. He goes on trial. Now you have a prosecutor who is, what do they call him? I mean, a lady killer? Uh, easy on the eyes? I don't know. I'm just going by what the article stated. But this particular prosecutor, Nugent, really went after this guy. And that was pretty much... Uh, going to be the nail in his coffin what you had here was a wannabe nazi he took out his hatred on three innocent individuals who actually were killed he shot two other people who were luckily survived it's amazing that hardaway survived as much as he did you know being shot as much as he was to be saved by a medallion it's really shocking and kind of crazy so it's it's impressive that he survived and they do talk to him later on and he does think that he deserves the death penalty and that's of course what the prosecutors seek and that was um you know what judge sweeney would see he would see uh, a guy who loved hitler he would enter and do a hail hitler a ha whatever salute i don't even want to pronounce it right he didn't seem to grasp the contradiction that you know, a member of the master race was pleading insanity. Defense attorney Tom Shaughnessy could do little except paint his client as crazy as he seemed. He put Spizak on the stand, egging him into casually admitting to killing in the name of God and Hitler, whom he regarded as a Jesus figure. Blacks were overpopulating the world, Spizak argued, and he was helping call the herd. Quote, there's a lot of work to be done. Unfortunately, there's not enough people to get it done, he announced, his chin up in the air like a duke. Lying in wait was assistant prosecutor Don Nugent, a lady killer with the jurors, with piercing eyes, a poker room swagger. Quote, Nugent presents a very strong image where lightning's going to flash from the heavens if you do wrong, says longtime defense attorney Richard Drucker. Nugent asked Brendan's mom to take the stand and to do the unthinkable, stare down the man who gunned down her husband. Kathleen refused, terrified. Brendan pleaded with Nugent not to force her. Quote, he was trying to be strong and take his dad's place, says Nugent. Spisak coldly recalled how he shot Tim Sheehan. Quote, when I saw him go down, I knew I hit him, he testified. Shaughnessy showed him a crime scene photo of Tim's body. Quote, I thought I did a good job, Spisak said. Then Nugent came in for the cross-examination, and that's when Spisak proudly claimed. He shot Hardaway at the rapid station as blood atonement for the recent flat shooting or slaying of a white woman by a black man. Now Nugent pointed out that the killing hadn't been made public until a day after Hardaway was shot. Again, Spisak is just a liar. He just did it for his own sick pleasure, and that's what Nugent told the jury. Quote, like your hero, Adolf Hitler, you got a yellow streak all the way down your back. Nugent taunted the enraged Nazi. The prosecutor found Spizak's weaknesses and used them to humiliate and 
him and calling him by his female name, Frankie. Quote, the name is Frank to you, buddy, Spizak shot back. Quote, the name is whatever I want to call you, Nugent replied. Quote, I was overwhelmed by what Nugent was doing. Brendan remembers. He was, quote, aggressive and prepared. Not even the defense zone psychiatrist could help, because in a shocking moment, the doctor testified that Spizak suffered from a personality disorder, but he was not legally insane. That's the big difference. So he was convicted for all the murders, and he was asked by a reporter afterward if he could think of any reason why he shouldn't be fried. Spizak smiled and responded, not offhand, can you? Now the jury agreed sentencing Spizak to die. He left the courtroom with a rousing Hal Hitler salute. This story right that I'm about to read is one that Mark Spetzel, and that was chief, former chief of Bay Village Police, that he told me about a circumstantial case that was uh, brought in 2001. And it might sound like I'm on a tangent here, but it's actually connected because you'll understand in a minute. But I asked him one day in an interview if he had ever prosecuted a case in, with cir- just circumstantial evidence. And this was the case. And he said this guy, basically he was uh, a construction worker and he was killed by his contractor in a dispute. So the person that actually put it in the forefront, according to Cleveland Magazine, was, quote, for she and life fell into place fast. He proposed to his girlfriend from law school, and they had two daughters and a son whom he named Tim after his father. After graduation, he clerked for Nugent, who had been appointed by President Clinton as a federal judge. Sheehan was making a cool $80,000 salary, which rose higher when he went into practice civil law. It was a normal path for a budding lawyer. Follow the money. But Sheehan had another agenda. When Bill Mason became prosecutor in 1999, he started noticing the bright-eyed attorney following him. Quote, wherever I was, he showed up. Then one day, Sheehan gathered his nerve and asked Mason for a job on the steps of the courthouse. The prosecutor wanted to make sure Sheehan knew what he was getting himself into. He'd start out making a measly $34,000 busting deadbeat dads in child support court. Quote, doesn't matter, Mason remembers the kid saying. I just want to do it. Telling his wife about his latest career move was a more delicate conversation, according to Cleveland Magazine. But Michelle stood by his, her husband, and they tightened their belts and figured out a way to get it done. He would go on to become a judge, and so Sheehan got what he want, asked for. I mean, he scratched his way through the child support court. Juvie moved up trying to felony cases, parole violations. And then he was lobbying in 2001 for a case against a loner named Timothy Mulder for robbing and roofing company when he got his chance to go big. A year after the robbery, Mulder had been called in by prosecutors as a suspect in a gangland-style slaying in Bay Village, Ohio, which is the city where Amy Mahalovic was killed, or abducted, I should say. But he was dismissed after his girlfriend backed up his alibi but she knew the murdered man roofer robert cutler was the cop's main witness to Mulder's robbery she urged bay village police to collect surveillance tapes from businesses near the murder scene and on the morning of the murder Mulder was videotaped at a nearby gas station it destroyed his alibi his girlfriend quickly ratted him out the boy prodigy had cracked a murder case Quote, it was Brendan Sheehan, because of him, why that case went to trial, says Judge Ron's sister. 
Sheehan earned his way to a sidekick job on a bigger and bigger cases. He was a darling of the old-time prosecutors, tipping verdicts with a baby face and Eddie Haskell politeness that the veterans had lost to cold eyes and stomach-turning pauses. Quote, he's the kind of guy I think most people like their daughter to bring home. And that was according to attorney Drucker. Quote, he's got an all-American type of appeal. Nugent basically helped Sheehan become one of Cleveland's biggest judges. Let's get back to Spizak because while they thought his appeals would only last him a year or two or 10 years at most, it took another 25 plus years and he lived on prison food and court appeals and a series of filings and Spizak argued that he, since he was transsexual, this was considered a mental defect under Ohio case law and they should not be able to put him to death. He did try to do all these other things. He did try stamp collecting. He was doing all sorts of weird stuff when he was in jail just because you're in jail. Uh, but basically, he got to live a longer life than Brian Warford did, and that is terrible. So the day finally came for the execution of one Frank Spisak on a Thursday morning where he would be killed by lethal injection. Now, Spisak expressed no remorse for his crimes when given a chance to say his final words. Instead, he read a handwritten note in German with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21 in the Bible's book of Revelations. Spisak, who wore a Hitler-style mustache and saluted the Nazi leader during his trial, struggled at times to read the note clearly, complaining that the words were blurry. Hal Hitler, Spisak concluded, he was pronounced dead because he was currently falling asleep and dying, I guess. Uh, he was pronounced dead at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility at 10.34 a.m. Now, Spizak was 59 at the time, and he was the 42nd Ohio inmate executed since 1999 and the first executed that year. Now, he spent more than 27 years on death row. And again, after the execution, Spisak's lawyers lamented the state's killing of a mentally ill man. Quote, we know what the media is going to say about Francis Spisak, but the truth is Francis was more seriously mentally ill and committed the crimes because of this mental illness, not because of the hate. Benza and Rossman said in a statement, quote, maybe someday we will see executions of mentally ill people for what it is, barbaric. Judge Sheehan reached after the execution, said Spisak knew what he was doing when he killed his father. He said Spisak's final words in German only cemented that belief. Quote, he showed his true colors in the execution, Sheehan said. Spisak will be Ohio's last execution using the drug sodium thiopental. The drugs maker objected to the use in executions and said it would stop production. So Ohio will be the first to state to test a, some other process, yada, yada, yada. This is all in some from an article about the death penalty. So my point is, this is an interesting and disturbing case because you have another guy who is a lone wolf who is out committing racially motivated hate crimes and killing people and ruining families along the way, terrorizing the city of Cleveland in the city and all the cities around it in this year of 1982. So I have zero issue with Frank Spisak getting the death penalty. I know that is a touchy subject for a lot of people, but this individual was remorseless and absolutely wanted to die. So it is okay for somebody to 
hate people, but it's not okay to go around and actually um, take it out on people because that is the definition of committing a hate crime. So you are where you are in hell, and that is okay with me and probably most everybody listening. And if not, you probably should be listening to another show. But thank you guys so much for joining me this week. As always, I drop new episodes of Who Killed on Fridays, and you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. You can donate to the show with my Venmo uh, for the show, which is at Who Killed. And again, every little bit helps keep these shows on the air. Now, if you do want to read a review, write a review, uh, you can do so wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I do appreciate you guys listening. And again, thank you so much for tuning in this week. And as always, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.